An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're exceptionally pleased to welcome our guest, Bruce Freed. Bruce has been trying to change how businesses spend money to affect elections and policies for 20 years. That seems particularly apropos today in mid-spring 2023, at a time when businesses either, depending on your viewpoint, caught in a political crossfire or throwing fuel onto the bonfire of American political polarization, or perhaps both. Bruce, Bruce is the founder and president of CPA, the Center for Political Accountability, the country's leading resource for investors and businesses which want to engage with our democratic institutions responsibly. CPA has established best practices for disclosure, decision-making, and board oversight of corporate political spending. With prospects close to nil for governmental action at the national level, this work is more important than ever. Bruce also co-authored the conference board's handbook on corporate political activity, and has been quoted or written up ends for every place from the Harvard Business Review to the Financial Times, Washington Post, and Reuters. Prior to establishing CPA, Bruce spent more than a quarter century reporting on business, Congress, and politics for The Hill, The Wall Street Journal, and others, and then actually helping to legislate as chief investigator for the Senate Banking Committee, staff to a House subcommittee, and as a congressional aide. In other words, when it comes to trying to make sense of business, politics, government, and money, there just is no one else as knowledgeable. It, Welcome, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be with you, John. So what's your origin story? Around here, we all have some interesting people who have had interesting lives, and you certainly have. But how did you become interested in making the intersection of money, business, and politics your life's work? I've always been interested in politics, even as a youngster. I always wanted to come to Washington, and uh, I'm one of those, you know, people who've been able to sort of live out what my dreams were. Uh, you know, I wanted to get into journalism. I had a, a great interest in history, so I majored in history in college. I'm an ABD, Alba dissertation in American history from uh, graduate school, and I, you know, I was very fortunate in being able to get into uh, journalism at a time when you could really work up from a local paper then to, to the national papers. I came into Washington in 1974 during the Watergate crisis. And uh, the first assignment that I had with the publication I was working at in Washington, Congressional Quarterly, was to cover the 1974 uh, campaign finance law, the enactment of that. So that really brought me into politics at a crucial time where money was a major issue. And I've been able to build on that o over the years, you know, having a continuing interest of so the role of money in politics, the role of business in, uh, in politics, you know, from my work as a journalist with the Wall Street Journal, 
but also uh, the work on Capitol Hill and then following it over the years and then finally finding, founding the center in 2003. So let's dive right into that. What are the issues around money, business, and politics today? How much of a problem is it? And do the issues vary depending on where you sit in the ecosystem? In other words, are the issues different if you're looking at the situation as an investor, as a CEO, as a member of Congress, or just as a citizen? The issue is not different. I mean, the issue comes down to what is the role of, of, of money in politics? What is the role of corporate money in politics? You know, what relationship should business have to the political process? how it really needs to conduct itself as a corporate citizen. And, you know, and today the real issue has become the protection of democracy. You know, that really, it began to arise in 2016. By 2020, with the uh, 2020 presidential election, let's say the, the insurrectionary attack on the Capitol, you know, it was central. You know, was our democracy, is our democracy able to survive? Well, you mentioned the insurrection on January 6, 2020. And there was actually a moment when a number of companies called, well, I guess it was effectively its timeout on political giving. And a number of us hoped that the timeout would evolve either into a permanent decision to stop playing the game, or at least a considered analysis of how to give, perhaps per CPA's guidelines. And you said that it could have been an epiphany moment when companies reassess how they're involved. But there seems to have been a not-so-thoughtful, I don't know how to make epiphany an adjective, but non-epiphonic moment, slow motion return to sort of ex-ante status quo. Have we missed the moment when real reform might have been possible? I think it was sort of a partial missing of the moment. Uh, I mean, there are some companies that are rethinking and that have rethought this. Uh, unfortunately, there are many that paused. And, but unfortunately, it was not a pause that refreshed. In a sense, it, the pause was temporary. Companies today really need to look very seriously and take the steps to evaluate the impact of their money on, uh, on the political process, on the outcomes that we have, how this affects the environment that they need to operate, grow, and thrive. I mean, that's why the center the center has made political disclosure and accountability the norm through our effort. You know, we measure that through the CPA Zicklin Index, and, uh, and we've made it the norm. But the next step really is taking disclosure and taking board oversight and accountability policies and moving to having companies having a framework or approaching and governing their election-related spending that looks much broader at their role, responsibilities, the environment they need, that they need, and the risks that they face. This really is a, an integral element of enterprise risk management. They need to like, take a look at enterprise risk management much more broadly because it really does affect, you know, the, the ability of companies to be able to be, to innovate, to have the type of environment that they need, need where they can be healthy and operate, you know, in a stable democracy under a rule of law. Let's talk about that. How do companies get in trouble with political giving? And what are the best practices that the center suggests to mitigate risk in terms of enterprise risk management 
I mean, are some types of giving more of a problem than others? And what are the guidelines to how to do it well? We look at giving using corporate funds or treasury funds. We don't really pay as much attention to the use of the corporate PAC. Corporate PACs are, uh, are funded by company employees and others who have relationships with the companies. Contributions to the corporate PACs are limited. Contributions, spending by the corporate PACs are limited. And also there's full disclosure of the money going in and the money going out. The serious problem that you have is with the use of the treasury money, where the amounts are unlimited. Companies given the five, six, and seven figures. Companies uh, use that money to give directly, or, or also they give it through third-party groups. And third-party group spending poses a very serious problem to companies. You know, there I'm talking about, you know, the money that they give uh, this run through trade associations. Some of the major trade associations, pharma in particular, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, American Chemistry Council, engage in election-related spending. But you also have the super PACs. Uh, super PACs will engage in independent expenditures. Companies can give to super PACs, you know, in uh, the, the, again, the five, six, and seven figure range. You see the super PACs active at the congressional level, but there are committees known as 527 committees, the governors associations, the state legislative campaign committees, the attorney general associations. Those groups have been crucial for reshaping and I would say distorting state and national politics really since the 2010 election cycle. Companies are major donors there. And then you have the 501, excuse the 501c4 organizations. These are the dark money groups, uh, along with trade associations. The C4s are also known as self-social welfare organizations. Company payments to the C4s and to trade associations are anonymous. No disclosure is required. Now, the center through its work is, is casting a light on this because there are companies that are beginning to disclose their contributions to the 501c4s. There are companies that are disclosing their payments to trade associations that are used either for lobbying or election-related spending. So we're getting, you know, more insight into that. That's very important. We're finding also, and this is something we're measuring through the CPA Zicklin Index, uh, companies that are walling off prohibiting contributions to 527s, to C4s, to super PACs, uh, to, to trade associations. All of this is laid out in the findings of the annual CPA Zicklin Index. But I think that, you know, the, the role of company money in politics has been tremendous. And, uh, and I think the United States is unique in that. And I think it also has been very distorting. It sounds like the first thing is, you know, the old sunshine is the best disinfecting all those various numbers and letters that designate dark money pools you tried to bring light to but what what else should a company do because obviously companies give because they think it's in their interest yes you're arguing that it may not be in the rest of our interest so that is a hard situation to be in which is to say to a company don't do something that you perceive in your interest because it has a broader impact on the rest of us. And how, we, how should companies walk that edge, walk that line? And you know what, it may, it may, may not be in the, the broader interest, but it also may not be in their own interest. Mm -hmm. That's why enterprise risk management is so important. You know, we pair disclosure with accountability. Disclosure with accountability 
really has very little impact. But accountability is crucial for senior management and directors reviewing the company's political spending. Where is it going? What does it associate the company with? What does it enable? How and where does it conflict the company core values and positions? If spending has a bottom line impact, it has a reputational impact, it has a legal impact, it can affect a company internally with employees in dissatisfaction, it can affect, impact the company externally where you have uh, customers uh, and others who decide that they will shift their spending elsewhere if they see conflicted spending. It also affects companies in the bottom line. You know, for instance, you take an issue such as climate change. Companies who, who state that it's in their interest to have climate change addressed and then give to attorneys general to help elect attorneys general who are bringing lawsuits to undercut the government's ability to regulate a climate change. That has a direct business impact on that. You know, so you, you, find, you find companies also contributing to office holders who then engage in active intimidation against the company. Disney is a prime example there. But you also, that was a problem that AT&T faced during the Trump administration when they faced an antitrust suit. It was not brought for economic or competitive reasons, but was brought for political reasons. So, I mean, we could go through the list. Now, you know, when we talk about disclosure and accountability, the next step is the model code of conduct. It's the model code of conduct lays out the framework for how companies approach the spending. Looking at knowing where the company's money ends up where they give to a third-party group. Having that public, having the board of directors and senior management really pay close attention to the alignment of a company's uh, political spending you know, with the company's policies, positions, and core values. All of these things are very important. Looking at their broader societal obligations and responsibilities, and the same, the obligations and responsibilities as a participant in the democratic process. There have been innumerable cases, as you say, of companies at least having headline risk and maybe having supplier and employee trouble about contributions to various places. I can think of um, LGBTQIA plus friendly companies who have given to politicians who then enact anti-gay legislation yep. and their workforce gets upset. I can think of cases where companies that are in healthcare have yep. uh, tripped over the abortion issue and, and other things. So let me ask a, 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 what appears to be a naive question, but why do companies give? I mean, IBM for many years was able to become, you know, a major American company, and it had a policy of never giving campaign contributions. Why do companies just not say no? And I will tell you that I have spoken to innumerable CEOs who say they wish they could get out from the middle and just not give, but they don't seem to be able to say no. What, why is that? That's a very good question because IBM is an example of a company that's been able to do very well without engaging in uh, election-related spending. Now, I know, I know the folks at IBM very well, and IBM clearly uses its presence in congressional districts and states, its employees who are constituents, its, its size uh, you know, to be able to be heard and to be taken seriously 
and to influence policy. Many companies see political spending as basically access. They're buying access. You know, that's where they'll use the pack to buy access. It's like buying a ticket to get in to see the movie, to a movie or go to see a play. Other companies will say, well, we're giving to be able to, uh, to have a, a pro-business climate, less regulation, lower taxes. The fact is, you know, these are very sort of easy responses that really do not take into account the level of risk that they face today. I would argue that the level of risk that they face has increased exponentially uh, on this. Companies can address that if they have policies in place on what they are going to do, whether they're going to spend, and if they are going to spend, how are they going to approach spending? I've had innumerable folks from companies at very senior levels saying to me, I wish we had a policy in place. Policies give them much greater control over what they do and what they don't do. And that's one reason why we developed the model code of conduct for corporate political spending, because mo the model code gives companies the policies that give them control. It gives them a justification for saying no when they want to say no for setting parameters. What's in the model code? The model code has all of the elements of the CPA Zipkin index, the levels of disclosure, you know, the, uh, the decision-making for election-related spending, board oversight. But it goes further and it calls for the disclosure of third-party spending by companies, tracing it through to the ultimate destination. The model code includes alignment, you know, that the board of directors and senior management consider alignment when they are reviewing their political spending decisions and the impact of the spending and risk of spending. It also includes the broader environment. Again, what I mentioned societal obligations and responsibilities, obligations and responsibilities as a member of the, of the, of a democratic society. You know, the model code, the 12th provision says that, you know, that, that companies should look more broadly at the impact of their spending when they're evaluating it, when they're making decisions on whether to spend or how to spend. And I assume that another part of the model code is just disclosure of what those policies are so that external investors can understand how public companies or, or even private companies for that matter, are managing these risks. Disclosure is very important, but again, disclosure has to go hand in hand with company conduct. And accountability. And accountability. I remember early on when we worked with companies, you know, with the shareholder resolution and companies would say to us, well, you know, we, we disclose to our directors what the spending is, where the money is, is going. So we don't feel the need to disclose it publicly. And we've said, you know what, the, the disclosure the, to, to investors and others is important to ensure accountability, to have, you know, the, the conduct of directors to be able to be checked by the investors, shareholders, and others. Let me ask you about what seems to be a paradigm shift. Always dangerous to say that. It's hard to recognize when you're in the midst of one. But for decades, there seemed to be a tendency for the Republican Party and big business to be aligned. And that alliance seems to be fraying. You mentioned the Disney uh, dispute with the Republican governor of Florida, leading to a coalition of red state elected officials to use the power of the state literally against businesses they regard as too woke, mm -hmm. by which they mean basically the other side of the culture rewards. Governor DeSantis targeted Disney. 
Eli Lilly, which I don't think anyone would consider a particularly woke or overly woke company, is based in Red State, Indiana. Yep. And then when Indiana announced its fairly absolute or severe anti-abortion laws, it put, Eli Lilly said it was going to have to grow outside the state of Indiana because it wasn't going to be able to attract the workers inside the state of Indiana. So there seems to be this frame between the Republican Party and big business. What's going on and where do you see the dynamic heading? I think there's been a, uh, a major change in the, the outlook of the parties. I mean, it's something that I saw working on Capitol Hill, you know, when you, you had the rise of Newt Gingrich, the change in, in sort of the complexion and base of, of, of the Republican Party. Uh, CPA is nonpartisan in the way it approaches the issue. We approach it as a risk management issue. But the fact is companies really need to take a look at how the political environment has changed and how it impacts them. Because you're absolutely right. You know, there are really different outlooks, attitudes by each party. And companies really need to consider that as part of risk management and how it impacts them. There has been a fundamental shift in U.S. politics and companies that, that needs to be recognized as they approach risk management. Yeah, I've always been a big proponent that situational awareness is a big part of risk management. And yes. when the situation changes, you'd better make sure that your risk controls are up to the new context in which you find yourself. I so, think put it very delicately and very accurately. Well, let's use your expertise, your academic training, as you say, was as a historian. Actually, I, I just, out of curiosity, you said you were all but dissertation. You must have thought about what your dissertation would have been. Did you have any, any thoughts about what you would have written a dissertation about? It was going to be in modern American political history. That's what I really enjoyed a great deal. I mean, I, I really never got down to exactly what I was going to be dealing with, but I remember thinking about, you know, possibly something during the Truman administration. I'm one who really loves American history as you, as you get into the progressive period, the new deal and looking at, you know, and even the new frontier. I came of age in, in, uh, in 1960, I was very fortunate to see John Kennedy several times in the 60 campaign. I was at the 64 convention and then the conventions at 84 and 88. They were at the democratic conventions, but there was a sort of an excitement in politics then. Politics has changed considerably since those times. Well, that's a perfect lead in. Since your academic training was as a historian, can you think of another era in American politics when business and politics, their relationship was both so intertwined and so fraught? And are there any lessons that those past periods can teach us? I think there are two periods here because I, I uh, you know, I think you need to take a look at the, the era of the trusts. And that led to the progressive period, you know, in the progressive period, you know, the major economic reform legislation there would have been the, the past way well, you had the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1893. And then you had the, the Federal Trade Commission Act in, I think, 19, uh, maybe 1914, but the beginning of business regulation that, and then you had the New Deal where you had invigorated antitrust and the, and the rise of the administrative agencies, agencies and sort of a, a method of regulation that's under attack today. 
those are the two periods that I just find absolutely fascinating. Any predictions then on where we are today and where that goes based on, um, you know, people say history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. I think the 2024 election is going to be an absolutely seminal election, whether democracy can survive in this country. You know, I think, uh, you know, that there are issues and there were problems that have been building up over the decades that, you know, need to be addressed. I was fortunate to cover the Securities and Exchange Commission for the Wall Street Journal back in the mid-70s when you had, you know, very creative and, uh, and committed people there, people like Stanley Sporkin, the enforcement director, who I had a, an opportunity to get to know well. And uh, there was a commissioner, Irving Pollitt. Irv was one of the great commissioners at the SEC. Again, I got to know him. Was after, I knew him casually when I covered the commission, but afterward. And, you know, to be able to have people like that returning to public service and playing a role in addressing the type of, of, uh, of, of challenges, of threats, of needs today. Um, frankly, I think it, it's in business interests to... Uh, you know, to have uh, this type of environment, you know, that, that keeps competition open, that keeps an economy dynamic, and it keeps a society healthy. So you don't have the type of tensions today that I think threaten our society at many different levels. So that's the historical comparator. Let me go geographically. What do other countries do about political spending by corporations? Do they have these issues? You know, we haven't paid as much attention to that because the United States is so unique, but uh, it really is less of an issue in, let's say, uh, many of the Western European countries where they do not have the tradition of extensive or direct corporate involvement. I mean, I know in some of the countries in Europe, you know, companies will be active, but they'll be active through trade associations. Uh, there will be other ways, but you just, the United States is unique in the direct role that companies play politically and in the very, I think, extensive role that they play in terms of, of political money. Okay. Let's finish with some uh, short questions and answers about you. How do you relax? I listen to jazz. I read my history. I'm going to Spain in three weeks. And so I just finished uh, Anthony Beaver's book on the Spanish Civil War. And I'm just reading a book on Moorish Spain since I'm heading to Toledo, Cordoba, Sevilla, and Granada. But I have an extensive, you know, collection of, uh, of books on, on history. I also, uh, I love photography. So when I travel, I always have my camera with me. And, uh, and then what I do is I, I put them on my electronic picture frame and I pay close attention to sort of the quality of the pictures that I take. You know, I have to say, outside in has five questions that we always ask people, right? And you have answered four of them in the first, because how do you relax? What music do you listen to? What are you reading right now? And if you could be on vacation. So I know the answers are jazz, history, and Spain. So I'll go a little deeper. What type of jazz? Oh, I was just going to get into that. I mean, my jazz, I have about three or 4,000 CDs in some LPs uh, still, but, uh, I mean, I like jazz from the earliest jazz. I my my collection opens with Jelly Roll Morton and the and the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, nineteen twenty two, the King Oliver Creole Jazz Band, uh, Louis Armstrong. You're talking about the early twenties, but I love Duke Ellington, Fletcher Henderson, Benny Goodman. You know, going through the whole swing period, I have a great deal in that. But I love bebop too. So I have you know the complete collection of Charlie Parker, but and Dizzy Gillespie. 
and it goes quite modern, but I like melodic jazz. So the, the free jazz with the honking and squeaking, that's where I end. But uh, mine is a very serious collection. I love the CDs because I want to look at the discographies. Who's playing? You know, who are the sidemen? When was it recorded? Where was it recorded? Listening to the outtakes on it. You know, how does the music change you know, when they do several takes for a recording? So jazz with the passion of the historian. Jazz with the passion of historian. I mean, when I was in New Orleans, I went to the jazz museum there to see Louis Armstrong's, excuse me, Louis Armstrong's first trumpet, Sidney Bechet's soprano saxophone, you know, the, the original recordings of Jelly Roll Morton. These mean a great deal to me. I had jazz at both of my son's wedding. People were absolutely amazed when they said, you know what, we could actually listen to the music while we were talking and while we were dancing and, uh, you know, and also had conversations, but I had some great jazz musicians at their weddings. To our listeners, let me just lift, lift the curtain on the uh, podcast for a second. While we only use the audio, we actually see each other at Zoom while we're doing this. And you have to see Bruce's face light up and he's, he's, as he's talking about this. Oh yeah. I love it. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? I would tell them that we have to continue to hope and to, uh, to be able to, to look ahead and see how we deal with this crisis and how we bring ourselves out of this crisis. This is a really distressing time, both domestically and I think on a global basis. The war in Ukraine, the threat to Taiwan, the threat to democracy worldwide, the threat that we face in the United States, the type of sort of society that we've, we've had over the decades, uh, over the centuries. Uh, I mean, I think one must remain in the thick and look at solutions. How do we get out of this? That's why I, uh, I continue to press ahead with, uh, with the Center for Political Accountability. And I'm always looking at how do we expand on our agenda? How do we build on the success that we have, the foundations that we've made? That keeps me going. Thank you. You've been listening to our special guest, Bruce Freed, the president for the Center for Political Accountability, which he founded. It is a unique advocacy organization. It is successfully changing the way American companies manage and disclose they're spending to influence elections. And yet, as Bruce says, there's a lot more work to do that we can have hope that it gets done and that we emerge a stronger country with stronger institutions of democracy. Bruce, thanks so much. John, this has been a pleasure. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCombick, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higgisa, John McCumnick, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.